You are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The View. The View is the Church of the Larger Fellowships weekly podcast hosted by, um, you'll see uh, if you're looking at us on your screen or you're hearing us on the podcast, we're all going to introduce ourselves today. So I am Christina Rivera. I'm coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, where it is just gorgeous, finally gorgeous, gorgeous cold winter weather, but no snow, no rain. It's just beautiful. It's so exciting. <laughs> um, let's see, I will throw it over to Meg. Hey there. I'm finally back in Minneapolis. I got stuck out east because of what were called storms out there. Ha, says the Minnesotan. Two inches of snow, but it could have been bad. Anyway, <laughs> I'm back where we have about eight inches, but it all came while I was gone. So it's kind of wonderful. It isn't the gray stuff that we get later yet. So, hey, Aisha. Hi, I'm Aisha Hauser in Seattle, and it is not snowing. So, yay. And even if it does, it's about a dusting, and everybody freaks out, and it melts in about two hours. Um, and then it's fine. So, yeah, that's me. I'm doing well. Antonia, how are you? I am doing well. I'm here in Delaware and it is a little rainy usually and chilly, but no snow is on the ground. So I can't complain about that. Um, we are uh, live on YouTube today, which is a little different because we're usually live on Facebook. We were having a little trouble with that. So if you want to talk to the panelists and um, have conversation with us, please comment in the YouTube um, the YouTube comments today. And I believe that uh, Lori put a link over there for us. So that'll be a lot of fun. Back to you, Meg, maybe. So we have, um, as Antonia uh, mentioned, we have Lori Stonesorowski uh, behind the chalice for us doing tech for us for a little while since we are on a slightly different YouTube platform. So thank you so much, Lori. We're giving you a shout out. And our guests today um, include, there she is, <laughs> um, Our guests today include uh, former uh, co-host tech people, um, people who've been on The View. Uh, so we're really super excited and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. And I guess I'll just frame a little bit of uh, why we invited these folks here. So today we're gonna have a conversation about how to have crucial conversations in covenanted communities. Um, right now, there are a lot of conversations going on out in UU land. And um, those conversations, you know, some of them aren't going so well. And we thought it would be helpful to have some folks on who we can all talk about um, how we can do this in a way that um, is faithful and, you know, uh, mitigates harm that can be done. So. With that, I will ask um, Jessica to introduce herself. Jessica Star Rockers, you know, I'm having a hard time because I feel like I should be doing more than what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, 
<laughs> I'm like, aren't I supposed to be clicking buttons or doing something? Um, former tech person on The View, I'm really excited to be back. You can see they've issued me my important person glasses, so I really look like I know what I'm talking about. It is 8.05 a.m. here in the Seattle area. I'm glad to be here. Um, should I say, I could say I'm the minister at Kitsap Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Bremerton, Washington. I'm also on the Commission on Social Witness with the UUA, and yes, glad to be here. I'll go next. My name is Julica Herman de la Fuente. I'm coming to you from Michigan where it's chilly but not snowy yet. So I'm wearing my fleece. And I am a anti-racism trainer and educator and coach at large in Unitarian Universalism. And I am also serving part-time as the UUMA intern this year. I'm really glad to be here. I have a lot of thoughts about covenants and I'm really excited to share those thoughts. And Matthew, how are you? I'm good. Uh, it's good to be on the show again. Uh, I'm Matthew Jensen. I serve our congregation in Rockford, Illinois. I'm in my 12th year here in this ministry and did five years in a congregation in Colorado Springs before that. Um, and I have uh, served on the Presidential Search Committee and the Moderator Search Committee, which has brought me to this show before, as well as the UUMA Guidelines Revision Committee, working on accountability procedures uh, for a new set of guidelines. So I've thought about those ways in which the covenant is enacted and the way we choose leaders as a movement and the way the ministers hold each other accountable. But I've also performed a ton of weddings and I serve a congregation with 350 people who try to live in covenant and I've trained covenant group leaders in the congregation. So have, I was happy to be asked to share some thoughts about how covenant is lived on the ground uh, in real bodies and real people uh, today. So, and the weather here in Rockford is sunny and brisk. Um, and again, no snow here at the moment, although we expect it any moment. I love that you said real bodies, real people. That that even I mean, you might think this is ironic since CLF is all virtual. But more and more to me, I want it not to be all souls church, but all bodies church. <laughs> and so I just I love that you led with that. Matt. So I, I know not to go down this road too quickly, but last night I led um I'm doing Harvest the Power, which is a UUA tapestry of faith curriculum. And I know that an update, I think, is on the works, uh, which is great because it, it needs some work, around, especially around anti-racism language. And But we were talking about the, the sessions on integrity and imagination and making hard choices last night with a group of 25 leaders in my congregation, uh, most of whom are older, retired folks. That's kind of who our leaders are. they the ones who have time, but not all of them. And... Uh, how quickly the conversation went to bodies. How do you know something's right? I feel it in my body. How do you know something is, how does something's wrong? You know, I've got this stomach ache, I can't sleep. How do you know that the work matters? I feel a sense of release in my, like, you know, these 65 year old humanists went to their bodies in a heartbeat. I don't think that would have happened five years ago or 10 years ago, here or in many of our congregations. And uh, I think we're recognizing that Covenant is lived um, in real life and in real bodies. And there's a sign of hope. Why do you, what, what do you think changed? I'm curious about this. I think that's a great thing, but I'm, I'm curious, what do you think mm -hmm. is causing that? I think our ministry has changed the way we talk about this. I mean, I'm certainly different than my predecessor in my conversation with them about bodies in real life. 
I think the conversations around trauma-informed um, ways that that's enacted in bodies has seeped into the consciousness enough that among these leaders, at least, it's beginning to be noticed. Um, and we talk more about embodied spiritual practices, things like you know walking and prayer and yoga and um, that you actually do. Um, and so people are beginning to recognize these things. I wonder also if disability justice and trans non-binary attention has also invited us to be a lot more aware than we used to be. Yeah, and I think I think it's really important that folks um, really understand that what you were talking about, Matthew, about um, that feeling that you get when you know that you're in a crucial conversation, like that process, that physiological process of identifying that your breathing has changed, you're getting that pit in your stomach, that actually helps your brain get out of the fight or flight um, auto response and into a place that you can actually have a crucial conversation. Because if you're not paying attention to those signals that your body is trying to give you, your body's gonna continue to try and get you to acknowledge it. And you're not gonna be in a place that allows you to really have the conversations that we need to have in a way that we need to have them. And otherwise you're in a very defensive um, you know, place that, that really all your body is trying to do is either get you out of there or fight to make you safe. And so, you know, really a, a lot of the work that I'm doing in, in anti-racism training, wherever I go is talking to people about, you know, how is this feeling for you right now? Like, do you feel that pit in your stomach? Or, you know, where's your breath? Are you hunched over? Are you relaxed back? Like, yeah, do you, are your arms closed? Like, what is your physical presence right now? Because until you release that, it's really hard to get into these conversations um, faithfully. I mean, you can get into the conversations <laughs> and we've seen some of that, um, it, which is one of the reasons why we had you know, this, this uh, episode today is as we do see some folks um, going into these conversations with that, with that behind, you know, and, and it just makes it really hard to have the conversations that we need to have in a way that, that, um, reduces harm. You know, we know that that when we're in these conversations, they they're not going to be 100% harm free, but we can certainly try and mitigate it. I'll say one more thing about last night's conversation that might be helpful for us. And this is again coming from lay leaders in this little midwestern, mid-sized midwestern church. Um, all on their own, without my prompting, they named the difference. How hard it is to know the difference between the uncomfortable feeling that there might be a moral problem to deal with and the uncomfortable feeling that comes from white fragility and conflict avoidance. All on their own, they named that. I didn't even have to say it. And I think it's really important as we talk about, I feel uncomfortable. We know, right, we've done this work that comfortable is mistaken for safety for white folks on a regular basis. And um, so it was great to hear them. I was about to say it and they said it before I got to it. So. Um, people are getting it, I think, in our congregations, in most of our congregations. Can I talk about the polyvagal theory? Has anybody? The, the, um, so one of the things when I talk about covenant with my congregation is I talk about the polyvagal theory and the 
that there's a nerve that runs through all of the major organs of our body up to our brainstem. It doesn't go up to our uh, where we're, we have higher level thinking, it goes up to our reptilian part of our brain. And so when we're in a, any state of fight or flight, any state of fear, flee, what, whatever those all are in our bodies, we can't actually access our more creative thinking. And to me, this is why covenant is actually so important because when we're in a calm state, when we've all calmed our bodies, we can create community and, and relationship in creative, beautiful ways together. And so when we get to these crucial conversations that we're all in our bodies, not even sure, we can't, we can't know when we're in that state, even sometimes what is happening? Why do I feel this way? We, we can't know. We're just, it's impossible to access the knowing. We can go back to our covenant. We've already established it. And, and assuming that we move in and out of covenant, that it's just, that's going to happen. There's, there's no way to stay in covenant all the time. So we have processes built into that covenant of what happens when we move out? How do we come back in together? And just leaning into what we've already created when, we're, when our bodies are in those states. And that with the polyvagal theory, for so long, we've all thought the mind-body connection is this kind of woo-woo thing. And now we're seeing it's not at all. It's actually a scientific thing that we can do things about. There are ways that we can calm ourselves and, and you know, allow ourselves to access that higher thinking. It's fascinating to me. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> and I think it's important to note that, that a lot of cultures and a lot of religions have known that for a long time. Um, and that, you know, I think the, the part of us quote unquote, us getting to know that um, and that it's not some new age mystical um, thing is the white part of us, like of our communities. Um, because I think, you know, if we look at a lot of the um, uh, cultural understandings of, of a lot of our marginalized communities, we've been using those because we've, we've needed them. Um, to, to survive and thrive. Um, so I, I think it's, I, I agree with you, Jessica, it's super important that, that our congregations are doing that, that work. Thank you for naming that. I totally appreciate that. Julica, you said you're thinking about this all the time. I'm dying to hear what you're thinking about. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so one of the things that I was thinking about was um, why do people feel threatened? And why are they not able to be in covenant or, or, or stay in relationship in a community? And, I, and I'm thinking about uh, a group, a subgroup of Unitarian Universalists who are right now feeling very activated about their freedom of speech, for example. And I would, and I'm speculating, and this is all just me trying to make sense of it, because I'm not part of that group, and that's not how I feel right now, is that when we are in a place of minimization in the IDI understanding of relationship to other cultures, when we are in a place of wanting everyone to be the same and equal, we don't have a power analysis 
of how our different social locations impact our experience in covenant and in relationships. And so I think that being asked to give something up in a place of minimization without a power analysis is more threatening because it doesn't make sense that you have to give something up because we're all equal in this place in this place of minimization of of which is which is an important place to be like that's that's the gift that dr king gave us right my children and your children together that that vision that idea is a really important place that many of our people actually were part of bringing to 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 our society and so now to ask them well no actually it's not it's not all equal and we have to have this understanding of where we are in our social location given our identities and our experiences of the world impacts harm how we feel harmed and how we feel safe versus uncomfortable in a particular environment um, and and i think that may not click I, I i speculate and i wonder how to hold my my beloveds who are in that space and you know one of the one of the things that i've been learning in the past few months as i have shifted from doing entrepreneurial anti-racism all the time to serving as the UUMA intern is now I, I am an intern minister to everyone, not just to the people who want to hire me for coaching. So how do I minister to these folks who are feeling challenged um, is, is a really important question for me to be engaging. And that's, I think, part of why I'm thinking about it a lot is because how can I, how can I serve you and how can I meet you in a place when even sometimes what you're saying is personally activating to me or, is it, or makes me feel like maybe you don't want me to be your minister, but I'm still going to be your minister even if you don't want me to. So it, it's just, so that's my own personal sort of journey through this. But I, I think that um, trusting a community and trusting that we can make agreements and lean on those agreements is a really important part of this process. And I wonder if we have done the work of creating that trust when some of our people have come as refugees from other religions where they have been hurt and injured in very important ways. And so to tell them you must constrain your behavior or your belief in any way is incredibly activating. So I don't know. I'll stop now because I, I, I can get lost down that particular rabbit hole. But if you want to ask me a follow-up question or jump off of that, please do. Well, I have a question. Go ahead, Matthew. I, I, something new said really made me think about this. And I wonder, um, those of you who've been around a long time, if you have thoughts about this question. I have heard that um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, the notion of covenant wasn't as widely shared among us as a orienting principle. That it was really Alice Boyer Wesley's essays, men's lectures on covenant, which was I think 2000 or 2001, on the, you know, the folks in Dedham and what it meant to, in their phrase, uh, walk together in the ways of love, known and unknown, ways of God, known and unknown. Um, using that ableist language we wouldn't use today. Um, but that 
those essays really got us thinking more about covenant and that as a part of the YRU movement in the 1990s, we talked a lot about covenant. We made covenants. I think women's groups made covenants. And I wonder if there's a way in which um, from like the principles got revised, you know, by women in religion leaders, Unitarian and Universalism finally came together because the youth had enough. Like there's a way in which the covenant conversation has come from the historical margins of our faith community. And some folks are still adjusting 30 years later to that covenant is more important than freedom or that there needs to be a balance in that if you want to use that kind of polarity management kind of idea about the two things. And I don't know if that resonates with those of you who've also been around and observed this for a long time, that covenant is a relatively, it's an old idea that's become new again, but people have long memories. Does that- I'm, I'm kind of the only old person on the show, so I'm, I'm hearing that aimed at me. I didn't want to presume. Yeah. <laughs> those of you, I'm looking around at all you Gen Xers. Um, anyway, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think lifting up Alice Wesley, not only the men's lectures, but just all the work she did, you know, to create a, a, a non-hierarchical, um, and, and I think... I want to lift up the Ministry of Religious Education, too, which that whole late great field um, did a whole lot to reshift the conversation. I think that the, um, you know, the 60s were a time of kind of exploding hierarchies, and that, that's kind of before my time. But I started paying attention in the 80s, and, um, and it was a sidelined conversation. I mean, the chalice was just coming in. You know, this thing of chalices everywhere just wasn't a thing before the 80s. You know, I mean, so I think the whole notion of really being a gathered people kind of was, uh, I, I think it was there. And then the 60s kind of uh, threw it, the 50s and 60s, I'd say, um, kind of threw it up a little bit. And then, um, and I know that there are people who have like, demons on this and I don't at all but just from watching the movement I would say lifting up Alice Blair Wesley makes a whole lot of sense so I have to say that I get to have lunch with Alice Blair Wesley a few times a year because she lives in Seattle I know she's awesome so I just want to say she's amazing we have great conversations and we disagree about what's happening right now in the UUA so it's awesome but I don't want to speak for her maybe we can have her as a guest on the view which would be fun um I think that, yeah, I do think her work was seminal. Absolutely. She gave me a signed copy of her book. Um, and what, to me, what else can we do or have that connects us except covenant? I mean, we don't have a creed. We don't say we all have to be, and to me, it's the, the covenant is a gift. And so, and it's not easy. Everything's fine till it's not. It's easy to be in covenant when we're all loving each other and, you know, and then when something difficult happens, and to your point, Julika, folks, you know, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And that's really what I think it is. I mean, yes, they're activated. And I, I think the activation simply comes. In fact, there was a letter that was pretty public. Why can't we go back to our to the old way of collegiality or something like that? I'm like, oh, so when sexual abuse was rampant and you protected each other and it didn't matter that people were screwing the flock. I mean, what are we talking about right now? Like, take it down several notches. So what it, call, calling people back into covenant and saying, you know what? 
we are going to affirm people in the fullness of their humanity. That may seem like not that many words. It is a huge task because that means we need to be intentional about what we say, how we say it, and why we're saying it. And that's a good thing because people running around doing and saying whatever the fuck they want in, in the, under the guise of religious leadership is bullshit. So that's just layman's term, lay people's term for this stuff, but <laughs> I feel like the need to say it that way. I I would also complicate the idea even further. So I have been privileged to be working with Reverend Dr. Clyde Grubbs in uh, on a task force where we're working on the right relationship guide training manual as part of the UMA guidelines revisions process, and he helped us um, understand the critique of covenant from an indigenous perspective, which I think is really important to name. And that is that even way, way, way at the beginning of when this country was colonized, those white folks had wonderful covenants that did not prevent them from participating in genocide. So a covenant can be used to protect a group that has already agreed that they are this smaller subgroup, or I think it can be used to live into our commitment of what Paula Cole Jones says is the community of communities, right? Where, where we are ever increasing the circle and ever, ever um, doing a better job when we know better, we do better stuff. And those two, like, so it, so it's also important to recognize how are we using the covenant? I think that is so super important to point out, Julika, because the framework is that covenant is a way to have these crucial conversations, right? Not that covenant in of itself is the end all be all. It's a container for us to have those conversations, not we get to covenant and we're all good. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, we, we've got to covenant. We're all in agreement. This is how we're going to be. This is how we're going to act. Awesome. No, that's like the 10 percent of the work of, you know, getting to freedom is agreeing how we're going to try and be with each other as we do the 90 percent of the work. And so I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in making these perfect covenants and everybody has buy-in and everybody had a voice in making the covenant and everybody says yes. And to me, like, I want the bare minimum in my covenant, actually. I want the bare minimum to have people not be assholes and to understand when they are reacting out of uh, a place of fight or flight and like, how do I get back out of that so I can get back into this crucial conversation? Like I, I want, I, I think covenant is important. And I think as a concept, like Matthew was saying, it's important for our religion um, to understand itself as a covenantal religion. I think that's really important, um, but it does, it's not the end all be all. It's not where we stop. It's it's actually just the very beginning of, of where we need to be because then we get to have these crucial conversations and it's those crucial conversations that are getting us to, to liberation, right? So it's those crucial conversations when we say, what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist? 
and what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist who is doing harm? And what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist who's calling other people out on their shit? And what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist trying to get free? Um, and so those are the conversations I wanna have. And so often it feels like we get caught up, um, yeah, in that covenant conversation. And, and that's, honestly, it's not where I wanna be. Not only that, but if we are just creating all these covenants at the beginning, but then not creating real space to return to them, or not strengthening our interruption muscle. Um, so we create a covenant, we're doing a workshop, and then shit happens. Do we have the courage to say, something just happened, we need to stop, we're not going to complete the original agenda, we're actually going to have to go back to our covenant and figure out what just happened. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to fight your own white supremacy culture embedded. And, and I say this as an, a, a Mexican immigrant, like I, I've, I've been really well trained in white supremacy culture. Thank you, academia, because I, and I can't, and it's, it's a real effort to say, wait a minute, this is more important when there, when there's a, when there is a disturbance in the force, <laughs> we need to acknowledge it. We need to, we need to say what just happened and can we take time to figure out who needs what? Yeah. I think that's a really good point towards what our viewer, Paul Boothby said, covenant creates context in which deeper, more challenging conversations are more possible. Yes. Yay, Reverend Paul. Paul Boothby is the um, outgoing minister at the UU congregation in Lynchburg, Virginia. Talk about a tough, tough, uh, right next to Liberty University, uh, tough place to, to be a UU. So thank you, Paul. Yes, absolutely. And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, I, I was talking with a group of students at Sterling University via Zoom um, yesterday or the day before, and one of the questions came up is like, how do you, how do you decide what you're going to, like, they were asking me why I decided to do anti-racism work within a faith-based organization. And so we had a great conversation about that, but part of what, part of the conversation was about uh, prioritizing and how we can get lost. And like, for me, I was sharing with them, for me, you know, one of the questions I go back to is, how is this getting us free? Is the thing I'm working on right now getting us free? And if I can clearly see the ways in which what I'm working on is getting us towards that, I'm all in. And, it, and it's a great separator, you know, because is the conversation I'm in or somebody's trying to drag me into um, going to get us free? Um, and if the answer is no, then that person needs to have that conversation in that echo chamber um, because it, I, I don't have the time. Our people don't have the time for us to be putting energy towards that. One thing that occurs to me as we're talking is about um, this question around freedom and covenant. I, I wrote, you know, what gets us free? The question you're asking, Christina, I think is really helpful. You know, historically, the idea is that the first and most important covenant that one has is the covenant with God. And, um, you know, I will be your God, you will be my people, right? Here's the rainbow, the sign of the covenant. 
which happens after a horrible act of violence. I preached on this, um, you know, like the no story is awful. It's awful. And I'm not sure I want to be in covenant with that God. Um, and, uh, and the truth is that um, forgiveness and reconciliation is part of the question around what covenant looks like. And sometimes reconciliation is not possible um, because the covenant has been bruised too badly. And I, I think those ancient stories ask us questions about when that might be the case. Um, but the other thing that occurs to me is that we have lots of covenants. So the question of to whom are you loyal, right? What are your obligations? How do you prioritize, right? So there's a covenant with the holy that might be made as an individual or might be made as, a, as part of a people in some way. There's a covenant of marriage for some people or a covenant of a relationship. A covenant with your family or friends that might be implicit or might be explicit. Maybe there's a covenant of the congregation, which let's be honest, right? Maybe a hundred people in the 300 member congregation really get what that means. And the others are kind of hanging around and sort of consumers to it. If they move into leadership, they might get it, you know, um, but not everybody's really in covenant. We say that, but they're not really there. There's a covenant between uh, collegial groups, right? So the ministers have a covenant. I think the religious educators have a covenant. The musicians have covenants between them. And how real is that? It's more real in the cluster that sees each other every month than it is in a colleague you've never met. In theory, you're in covenant, but you got to test out how, how seriously did they take it? Do they mean the words the same way I mean the words? There's a covenant between our congregations, right? That's explicit in Article 2 of the UUA bylaws. Right, so each congregation is supposed to be in covenant with other congregations. One question, I, I don't know how real that is. Um, one question I think we're sort of grappling with is, is there a covenantal obligation for Unitarian Universalists at large? In addition to a particular con covenant, you might be in with a local congregation or with a professional group. Um, are you, are you, do you have an obligation or, or is the covenant only congregation to congregation? I think it's a live question. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, can 150,000 people be in covenant with each other? Um, I, I don't know. Can a thousand congregations really honestly be in covenant with each other? It's not clear that that's, that covenant is particularly robust in every case. Can 1,500 ministers be in real genuine covenant with each other? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Can 12 people be in covenant with each other if they spend time together on a regular basis? Yeah, I think probably so. I don't know the answers to all those questions, but I think a big part of our debate is which covenants are primary, right? Is it my covenant with my conscience and my sense of what's true for me? Is it my covenant with this group of people who I might be loyal to even if my Conscience is telling me something else. Those are hard questions, I think, for central to figure out they're, who we are. They're hard questions. And to me, going continuing the idea that covenant is a tool, the big question is, how do we bring people back into covenant without it turning into accusations of, well, well then, then one of the things that I also have, and people have already spoken to this, when folks are asked to come back into covenant and right relationship, um, the fight or flight comes in because for folks who maybe that ha haven't had to be in that 
much of their lives, all of a sudden, even being asked to um, think further on whatever it is they're saying that could that is impacting ne negatively other folks. So that to me is where I, it would be helpful to turn to is, okay, so let's say what, how I understand the covenant, which is different than you understand the covenant, Unitarian Universalism as a whole, when, it, when there's harm happening, how do we call people back into covenant and have the crucial conversation to affirm us as a community, us being Unitarian Universalists? And I think that to me is the question. So I'll, I'll further muddy the waters and say, is it because uh, from our theology, you know, we have a theology that is, was at one point in time rooted in Christianity and we have shifted from a covenant with God to a covenant with each other. And so do we recognize a covenant with the holy God, whatever, however you want to name that, um, superseding that that covenant with each other, or is now our covenant with each other the the highest responsibility that we have um, as Unitarian Universalists um, because we have shifted? Well, and some people, I mean, it is clear to me that they're they feel I don't know if covenant is the right word, but definitely. They hold up their relationship to an idea or democracy or some thing like that as higher than than a relationship, like a covenanted relationship. And so, you know, that's um, that's a difficult one too. And then covenant becomes something that is used as a tool to say, you know, one person says you're out of covenant and the other one says you're out of covenant for telling me i'm out of covenant <laughs> and it becomes um a, yeah a conversation where covenant then is used um to cause harm and to uh try to convince one another what is more important and um yeah anyway it becomes an issue when covenant is weaponized. And I believe that weaponized. in our faith, mm -hmm. many times covenant is weaponized. And where do we get to a point where we realize that that covenant, for me, covenant is about relationship. Um, and I wonder for people who don't believe in God, is it about relationship? Is it about ideology? You know, and until we can get a clearer sense. I believe that it's an individual thing to get a clearer sense for you what covenant is about and then operate from that place. But it becomes tricky when covenant is about ideology because we get into places where ideology is more important than um, humanity. And that gets very tricky. Then real people in real bodies. Yes. Well, that ideas become. This is, my idea is more important than your body's life or death. I think that's, you know, that's kind of the ultimate. And while we're just saying everything that's complicated and we don't know, I'll just reiterate that somebody said earlier that, especially for white people, community means comfort. So I'm in community with people where I'm comfortable. So if I'm uncomfortable, somebody must be out of covenant somewhere, you know? And so, um, and I mean, there are theorists who have shown this over and over that 
for privileged people, community means comfort. And, you know, for marginalized people, community means challenge and, and interaction and lots of other things, but not um, comfort in that way. So the weaponization can be experienced. It's that thing that Matthew raised of how do you know when the discomfort is really an ethical struggle and when it's fragility in action? Yeah. I Just to make that more layered, I would think for people who are marginalized community means survival. Yeah. And that that puts more weight on covenant or not being covenant, covenanted. Yeah, and I, I think we see this so often. Last night I was composing a Facebook post in my head and I was in an angry place and I thought, you know what, I should probably not do this right now, uh, which was a good thought. Um, but but the, the underpinning of it was, you know, what is it with people that, that their attraction or stake in freedom of speech will actually over overarch their commitment to another person just wanting to be referred a particular way. Like how hard is it to call somebody, you know, what they want to be called for their gender or their ethnicity or their race or that like, it's just not that difficult. It doesn't take that much. It, it it's like, so like it just, it was astounding me that somebody's, somebody's commitment to freedom of speech, to the idea, to an idea would, would supersede them seeing another person just wanting to be seen in their humanity. Well, is it really freedom of speech or is it comfort to say what I want? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, right? for them, it's like, it's, it's not even just comfort to say what they want. It's like, I'm going to say what I want. It has it's entitlement. It's entitlement. Yeah. But it's, but it's That's also it. it. yeah. it's also a reimagining or a redefining of covenant as orthodoxy. So there is only one right way to be, and you are telling me that if I don't agree with you, you are telling me like there is a there is a sense of being controlled. I'm working really hard to understand this. I really want to understand what is that experience. And that there's a part of me that thinks, well, yes, actually, there is a certain expectation that if you want to be in community and someone says they have been harmed and you continue to harm them, that we're going to ask you to leave the community. Like, yeah, that. That is part of it, I think. But that doesn't make it like there's only one way to speak or one way to be. It's about centering the folks who know best because they're living it in their bodies. And and so I guess I, I am asking for certain limits. And that is what covenant does. But I don't but I but help me separate that from this idea of orthodoxy. Yeah, I think I think there we are asking for limits. We absolutely are asking limits. Any relationship that we are having with each other, any covenanted relationship, any holy relationship that we're having with each other, we're asking each other to be to bring our best selves, right? And and we're asking that there's going to be a time when I need my needs met, and there's going to be a time when you need your needs met. And if we're in a covenantal relationship, those 
all of those things can happen, but it's not always going to be your needs, <laughs> right? We're not always going to be focused on your needs. We are going to spend time being focused on other people's needs, particularly if your needs have a really easy way of being met and have been met because of your, your gender, your race. You know, if you're a white man in, in the U.S., your needs are going to be met in a different way than a black woman. And so, yeah, we, we are asking, we are asking for people to, to control themselves, you know, to, to behave in certain ways. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I don't know a lot of marriages or partnerships in which you can just like, do whatever you want, you know, a hundred percent of the time. It's just not, you know, the nature of being in community. I think one thing that really makes this difficult for us is that our historical kind of way of thinking about religious prophets is so individual in the wilderness kind of centered. And um, so take, for example, Theodore Parker, right, who was excluded from the minister's gatherings of the Unitarians in the Boston area because of his radical theological beliefs. Today, we look back and think Parker was right and they were wrong. But at the time they tried to set limits on his behavior and he took his bags and left. Preached his own installation sermon because nobody would come and do it for him. Now, part of that is his ego and I don't know the full story here, but I think now we look back and think he was right and they were wrong. I think we think the same thing about, you know, John Haynes Holmes and like there are others sort of like the righteous one in the wilderness kind of thing. But there's a cost there, both to the person who leaves that and, and to the community. And, and I think if we read the current conversation about, I need you to call me by my real name, as a restriction on freedom, then it gets, then it all gets twisted. Cause like, wait a minute, Parker was the more inclusive. He was the more anti-racist. He was the more radical and yet freedom served him. So if we restrict, but like people just get confused about the whole thing. And there's a piece there about, I mean, it's not just Parker, right? Jesus says to his family, forget you. You know, Siddhartha Gautama leaves his wife and children behind, right? Like the religious prophet is the one who follows their own conscience. This is the core of our historical sense of identity. But that's the way the story is Who is, is the told, we and the our? Right? Like who's, yeah, who's telling that story historically is what no, I No, mean, I mean, that's the story I learned in <laughs> seminary. And I think that's the way that a lot of folks have been trained to think about what liberal, the Protestant impulse to which we are, have inherited is part of it. Yeah. But, yeah. but I do think that that is the white strand of our learning, right? Right. So telling a fuller story is about what freedom looks like, what community looks like, what covenant looks like, what prophecy looks like, what following your conscience looks like, and how what wisdom looks like. All of those pieces is vital. Right. right because we have folks in our community now who are framing themselves as that lone voice in the desert um, shouting into the wind who are not the lone voices in the desert shouting. They are actively um, supporting, you know, a, a narrative of a privileged and entitled majority, uh, you know, in our, in our 
nation and our congregations. And so for them to take on that framing as being that lone voice is, um, well, <laughs> I won't say what exactly I think of it, but, um, you know, it's problematic and, and it's, um, it makes it that much harder for, for folks who are really trying to live out our values and, and be um, prophetic um, in a faithful way to be taken seriously. Um, because now we have people saying, I'm actually the, the one that has been, that is being done against. I'm actually the one, like with all of my privilege, you know, we have ministers. We have white male ministers who are in their pulpits, you know, saying I'm the aggrieved party here. and that's hella problematic for me. Um, when you have, you know, the, the number of black and brown religious professionals who are under or unemployed um, to, you know, to be able to, to have to listen to, to folks saying, you know, no, I'm, I'm really the aggrieved party in this from their place of privilege. It's, it's a little rough. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to AJ Van Tyne who's been um, commenting in the chats in the chat box and um, has some really awesome things to say. And I'm, I think I'm gonna just try and pick one of them because there's there's several, several of them. Um, but AJ was saying uh, covenants with the holy are going to look different depending on one's theology, right? Question mark. Like a bunch of theologically diverse UUs can't have the same covenant with the same co conception of holy. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have covenants with the holy and covenants with each other not sure which one is considered higher than the other. And I'm not sure that we would have to name one as the higher than the other. That, that, that was my comment at the end that, that yeah, I, I don't think that we would necessarily have to, you know, get into a hierarchy of them. Or if we have a deeply incarnational or process-based theology, a covenant with each other is the way the covenant with the holy is realized. Mm -hmm. Especially if we include the earth and, you know, uh, life itself as part of that. I've been thinking I a just, lot about. Okay, I was thinking a lot about how there are people in our congregations who really fought for equality, and especially white people, and they feel like equality is realized. And now we're asking for equity, and it's difficult for them to get to the point of equity because the whole thought process is everyone gets the same thing, then everything is going to be okay. So now to say we're seeking equity, it makes the situation of covenant more difficult because the idea of equity being sometimes people need more and sometimes the whole step up and step away is really difficult. And I'm wondering if that has an effect on the way that we are in covenant with each other. That's that power analysis. Was it, Julika, you said that earlier about how important that piece is? Yes. You know, this. I have so many more questions than answers about all of this. And, and what it makes me excited about is all of the people who are thinking deeply about this. Julika is holding, I know, uh, webinars to talk to ministers about it. I know um, different, different Facebook groups I'm in. The moderators are really wrestling with how to create spaces that work. Um, you know, at CLF, I haven't thought about this when we picked this topic. We started having kind of a routine conversation. Here's our covenant. Let's dust it off. And we got into this, these deep waters about 
Well, in a hierarchy, can you ha- really have right relationship? Because this is a hierarchical organization. And we, I mean, we really got deeply into it. And I think that I just, I just want to flag how important the conversations are and the, um, and the grappling with this. And that, as so many of you have said, it's not the beginning, it's not the end to have the covenant. It's just the beginning to figure out even how to be the people we want to be together. So. I, I'm jazzed up and also feeling better about how little I come to land in this, except I do land with bodies. That's where I land over and over, is that what text do I read? I read bodies. I read trauma. I read love. I read, I read the community that way. And um, it's not, as some, I think you just said, Christina, it's not rocket science to want to be caring to somebody (laughs) you know you just want to call them who they want to be called because that's kind and it's not you don't have to go have a group and think about it I mean to me that kind of um, uh, embodied faith is so critical however we name the holy it's if we're not doing that together why don't we just go off and be by ourselves you know one thought about that and this goes back to something you were saying earlier Christina that so we have a covenant so that we can have crucial conversations right? so those crucial conversations help us get free of ways of thinking and acting that do not serve the holy do not serve love do not respect people we get free because and the conversations the covenant is the container for that we get free for what for what purpose are we free to enter a deeper covenant with each other and be an authentic, real relationship. So the purpose of being human is to love one another and the world fully. That is its own kind of covenant. So I think, I wonder if there's a circle here between the covenant that allows us to get free and the covenant we can come to at a deeper and truer level once we are more free. And then you just keep going, right? Because we're never finished. We're never finished. Well, we have to stop harm. I, I think we have to stop mm-hmm. harm. There's a lot of harm happening because people aren't free and um, the tangible, what, what the, 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 the horrific tangible violence that is happening is what needs to stop. And at some, I mean, the idea that we're, that, that I still have to defend the words Black Lives Matter still 2019 um, in our UU congregations means what we're, you know, what is going to get us free and what does free mean is let's first stop with stop the harm, stop the harm, stop the harm. Um, so this one's. Well, and I want to say too, that I think part of the part of that process is that, that we are an emerging tradition. Like we're revelation is supposedly right. <laughs> like always um, presenting itself. We need to get free so that we can live out what our tradition is calling us to be. We can't um, know what is being revealed until we get free. And then we see what is being revealed. And then we continue the process and and reevaluate our covenants. And I mean, what is being revealed right now, for sure, Aisha, is that we need to stop harm. Like, that to me is clear. And that there are some folks who are uh, in their bodies experiencing trauma in a way that I, in my body, cannot understand. And I need to listen and see what is being revealed in that way. Yeah, I, I would like to underline that 
um, both in my current position in the UUMA and before when I was administrative support to the Commission on Institutional Change. I just want to name that some of our religious professionals are asked to serve our faith in ways that are just unbelievably intense and threatening on the regular. And that is not okay. That needs to stop. And we need to hold each other accountable. And accountability is part of getting free. And covenant is part of how we hold each other accountable. And accountability is not a bad word. I get really fierce about that. So I'm going to mute myself right now. I, you know, years ago, I heard um, somebody say that the people who are best at covenant um, are folks in the BDSM community um, because they are real clear about where the limit is and what the safe word is. And I think, you know, our movement could do some good with some real clear safe words. So we can, when we say, ouch, stop, don't say that. The question isn't, well, why? Explain yourself, explain yourself. The question is, okay, you've said the safe word. Conversation is over. And I think part of our accountability procedures for the ministers that we're proposing, number one is stop the harm. If a right relations guide says, stop the harm, then you stop. That's it. We'll have a conversation later. But first, you guys stop hitting me. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely, amen. Thank you all so much for this conversation. I think we could have it several more times. Um, this, this and we will in various <laughs> ways. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, so we are coming to the end of our show. We want to give a big, big shout out to our CLF Learning Fellows who are seeing the MFC, along with lots of other folks that are seeing the MFC. We love you and our hearts are with you. And I'm so not sure everyone. we have the name of our show for next week, so you'll just have to tune in and see what it is. <laughs> It'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Great show. Yeah, thanks everybody. We're, st we're still recording, I see. Um, Antonio, we want to talk shit about people. Turn that off. <laughs> <laughs>